Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fintech Cafe, a weekly podcast that takes place with a live audience on Clubhouse. This is episode 58, and the guest today is the co-founder and CEO of Zeta Suite, Bhavan Tarakia. The topic of our conversation is credit cards issuing platform, and Zeta is actually our first fintech from India. Bhavan is an impressive entrepreneur who's driven by action and possibility. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as we did. But before we kick off, remember, the conversation took place on Clubhouse, where we were joined by a live audience. So what you're listening to today is that recorded session. Let's do a quick round of introductions next. My name is Ambika Sharma. I'm the creator and host of Fintech Cafe. I started this show as a hobby. I have worked within the financial services for the past decade in countries like the US, Switzerland, Germany, and Chile. I'm joined weekly by my co-host Manisha Chakrapani, who has also worked within the financial services for about 15 years within product strategy specifically. We enjoy this conversation and hope you do as well. Hey, I'm Monisha, managed product strategy by day at one of the big five banks. I've also been in the financial industry for almost two decades now and obviously co-host. A quick shout out. I see some faces in the audience. It was great to meet you all at Money 2020 and great to be back here meeting one of the powerhouses at the conference. So Bhavan, welcome to the show. Zeta is not your first startup. You've built a few other companies, definitely caught the entrepreneurial bug. Tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, sure, yeah. So I was born and raised in Mumbai in India. I spent the first 30 years of my life there, I guess. And then then started living in a bunch of other places globally. So currently shuttle between Dubai, New York, and, and Bangalore for the most part. And, you know, I... Uh, I guess the entrepreneurial bug kind of hit early on, but I mean, I guess before that, so I, I was always passionate about math and physics growing up. And then I was, I went to the sort of boys only school called Arya Vidya Mandir in, in Bandra in Mumbai, and they installed their first computer room in 1989. This was kind of pre-internet, you know, green monochrome terminals, 8086 microprocessors, MS-DOS, you know, five and fourth inch floppy drives. So sort of really, I would say <laughs> for today's age, I guess ancient. And I, so I started coding on CC++, GW Basic. The internet kind of made an appearance sometime in 93, 94. And I, I started developing websites, you know, doing projects on the side, both me and my younger brother. And then we started our first company. We borrowed $300 in capital from our father in, I think it was 97, 98, and started a company called DirectEye, providing web hosting, domain name registration, email, and a bunch of web infrastructure services web platform, web presence services to micro SMBs around the globe. Grew that business. I was the only capital that went into the company and then grew that business for about 15, 16 years after, and then eventually sold it in an all-cash exit for about $160 million to a public company based in Boston in 2014. And apparently since then, I've actually started three other companies, Zeta being the latest and the last one where I sort of spend most of my time now. In 2012, I started a company called Radix. And Radix owns what are called sort of top-level domains. So just like you have .com, .net, .org, and Radix, I invested about $25 million of my personal capital in 2012. And we basically won the license to operate the back-end registry for and own the TLDs for .store, .tech, .online, .website, .site, .space, and a few others. <clears throat> and... Uh, and so that company now, I, I still continue to own it, but I have a CEO and a team that runs the show. Um, it's a profitable company. 
sort of growing at 30, 40% kind of day by day, sorry, year by year, and kind of fairly, fairly sort of self-running on its own. It's actually what I call now kind of a between scaling and steady state. And, and then in 2014, I started a company that now is called, became Titan. Titan basically competes with Google Workspace and Microsoft Outlook to provide a email platform and a communication platform. So email, messaging, calendar, contact service for, again, small businesses. And last year, we actually had WordPress partner with us strategically and invest, I think, 30 million in capital at a 300 million valuation in, in that company. And again, I have a senior leadership team that's actually been with me for upwards of 18 years now that works with me in, in that organization. And then Zeta, I co-founded in 2015. Me and my co-founder, we put in 40 million of personal capital at that point to start the company with the simple goal and objective of pretty much rewriting all of banking tech. And I mean, also, we started with, you know, first principles approach of really building a modern kind of next-gen processing platform for issuing and acquiring. And, and yeah, we've been growing that business since over the last seven years. That, that was a lot that you packed in there. Very great to hear some of your journey. And I feel like we could spend an entire show just talking about some of those other startups. But since we're here to focus on your most recent one, you, start, you said you started Zeta in 2015 in India. And like Ambika mentioned, one of our first Indian startups. So very excited. And also the plan is to scale globally. You've recently opened offices in US, as we learned last week. So a little more about the founding story, Bhavan, if you may. You mentioned the next-gen processing platform. But what, what really got your attention and your co-founder with this pro uh, problem statement? Like, what, what was really the straw on this modernization path that you went down? Sure. So, actually, I've spent my entire life building B2B SaaS, right? Both micro SMB, SMB, and enterprise SaaS across multiple companies now. So, that's kind of my forte in some sense. In fact, I think of, you know, well, like I said, potentially made every single mistake that any entrepreneur can, but I kind of have a template that I think of when I'm building new businesses. And, and I think of every company goes through four stages, just planning, discovery, scaling, and steady state. And so planning is kind of the stage at which I decide whether I want to build that product or start that business or start that company. So in some sense, your question kind of pertains very well to that phase. Ramki and I both, you know, started exploring the financial services space in, in, back in 2014 and spent almost a year doing our, uh, what I would call homework on the side to kind of figure out the industry in general. And so in the planning phase, actually, I think of, there's actually a, a template that I try and create, which comprises of really a clear understanding on, well, I would say seven things. So persona, problem, product, potential, uh, go-to-market, revenue, and moat. So those are the seven things that I kind of try and focus on through primary research, secondary research, whatever I can find, discovering the kind of, of course, the known uh, unknowns, but as well as the unknown unknowns, and try and come up with generally an overall business plan that covers these, these six things. So if you think about Zeta, you know, at Zeta, our vision is to enable every individual company to kind of maximize their financial wellness. And we decided to choose the strategic path of doing this by basically building the number one banking tech platform and transforming sort of banks into digital native companies. And so... If I think of, again, the framework that I laid out, 
you know, from a persona and a problem standpoint, not kind of use a summarized version, but from a persona and problem standpoint, <clears throat> if you think about it, all banks pretty much across the globe unequivocally do not love their existing platforms. And it's no surprise, you know, most of this technology was written before I was born, before smartphones existed, before the cloud existed. All of their customers deserve, you know, better security, better controls, better insights, better experiences that they're unable to provide at a rapid pace. I was reading the other day, I think an average bank takes about, on an average, a bank takes about 22 months to launch a new product or project, which means several of them can take about four to five years, right? So, so there's clearly a problem area for this particular persona. And if you think about the product, you know, all existing software, as I said, runs on systems, legacy systems, you know, mainframes and green screens, et cetera, most of which were created, as I said, before I was born. And so we kind of clearly identified that from a potential standpoint, if I go to kind of the fourth element of the framework, it's a large industry with the global, you know, potential for global. From a go-to-market standpoint, there's actually a, a pretty clear go-to-market, right? Because between, so when we actually, we, you know, highly data-driven, so we kind of ran stats on all the financial institutions across the globe, their kind of market share, their size, the number of accounts, number of cards, asset size, et cetera. And if you think about it, there's less than 250 banks across the world that, and, and less than, you know, 50 in North America that cumulatively represent like either global or U.S. market share, cumulatively represent upwards of 90% of the market share in that region. And so there's really a, a small handful, well, a small number of customers that are all, in, in some sense, dissatisfied with the status quo in a large industry that has a potential to make global impact for every single individual and company across the globe, where barrier to entry is high, there aren't too many players that are making the kind of investments that you know, we're making, and there's a clear go-to-market to kind of reach them and, and provide them a platform. And so, so it kind of ticked all the boxes in terms of you know, clear persona, problem statement that hasn't been tackled in a while, product and a platform that we can build that clearly tackles that problem statement, huge potential across the globe, straightforward go-to-market strategy, also a playbook that I've, I've used many, many times when it comes to enterprise sales, you know, pretty good revenue opportunity globally. We're talking double-digit billions of dollars in terms of potential revenue that banking tech makes across the globe. And also with a clear moat, by the way, which is again, kind of, as I said, seven elements. I also think of whenever I'm thinking of starting a business is, well, what's the barrier to entry for competition? What's the moat, you know, once I acquire and build sort of a business of a certain size, acquire enough customers, you know, is there, is there things that will prevent them from leaving us? And, and this is a very sticky business, right? A bank, I mean, most of these banks haven't taken the decision to actually change their core technology or their processing technology for upwards of two, three decades. And so we anticipate the same will apply post this transformation where, you know, market share that we get, we would, we believe remain retained as customers for a fairly long period of time. So I guess those were kind of the elements through that between about eight to 12 months that Ramki and me, we kind of spent a lot of time discovering and then decided that we'll kind of go down, go down this path. In fact, we were contemplating between should we start a bank ourselves and become like a fintech and, you know, so on and so forth versus kind of powering banks. Of course, we're both techies at heart and obviously the, the choice of building a, a really amazing technology platform is, is already kind of tantalizing for us. But independently, we felt like the ability to scale globally, you know, having sort of uncapped return on equity all of that will be hampered by getting into kind of regulatory business. You know, if you're a fintech, you have a high cost of funds in comparison to banks. There's a, there's a bunch of challenges and we felt we wouldn't be able to scale as fast to a global scale. And so uh, 
we were far more attracted with this kind of path that we took and we're seeing kind of really good traction and are excited about, about solving this problem. Bhavin, I have to tell you, I'm very impressed. I think everybody in the audience probably is, whoever's listening, you have a stellar resume, but I can't help and also tell you a little bit of my complaint here. Already we have Rishi Sunak, who just became the Prime Minister of Britain, and now we have you. I'm very certain my parents are going to be like, why can't you be more like Bhavin? Look at all the things he's accomplished already. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your co-founder as well, because he's from Bits Pilani, right? And Munisha, I think you also went to Bits Pilani. So tell us about your co-founder. How did you both meet each other? Sure. So Ramki, my co-founder, is an amazing, amazing person. Actually, the only other co-founder that I've had outside of my brother, right? So I started my first company. I was privileged enough to work with my younger brother. And now I'm, I'm truly humbled and privileged to kind of be able to work with, with Ramki. He's, a, he's an absolute genius, one of the smartest guys I know. He's the CTO and co-founder for Zeta, uh, amazing at sort of tech architecture, building sort of really complex, scalable platforms. So, you know, I would trust him to potentially convert any, you know, imagination into reality, I would say. Extremely high integrity, which is, again, always something that makes for an amazing partnership amongst co-founders. And it's an interesting journey, actually. We've worked together now. We met in 2008. So we worked together now for close to 14 years. And it was well, I guess an interesting time in the sense that, so he came, he interviewed with one of my earlier companies. He wanted to join us. I think he was working in, I don't know, one of the, either JP Morgan or Morgan Stanley. <laughs> I don't remember which one, but he flew in from Hyderabad for an interview, uh, for a tech interview to join sort of as a tech lead. You know, conventionally a tech lead interview in our organization would be four to five rounds, fairly extensive. We, we one of the fundamental beliefs I have is, is, is I, I tend to, prefer hiring leadership that are sort of fairly hands-on. So the interview can be pretty technical, actually is very technical, consisting of sort of actual, you know, fairly complex algorithms and, 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 and multiple rounds. But the interesting thing is on this day, well, interesting, not necessarily in an entirely positive way either. On this day, so this was, I think, November 2008. I don't remember the date exactly, but this was on the day he landed in Mumbai on the day when Mumbai was under terrorist attack at the Oberoi Hotel and the Taj Hotel from you know, these sort of set of people that had come in from Pakistan, I think. And, and so actually when he landed in and came into the office, we had actually let everybody go back home because obviously, you know, things were fairly stressful. Um, and I was the only person in office. And so it was just me and him. Uh, the entire office was empty. We're sitting in this glass conference room uh, that's right at the entrance of the office. And I spent, since I had nothing else to do and, you know, nor did he, I spent six hours interviewing him that day. So, so I spent uh, a fairly long period of time, went through like, you know, some fairly complex tech problems. And he was like, for his, you know, generally one of the things I find is people become more and more senior in their roles. They tend to become more and more hands-off, but he was, he was very impressive. So, you know, obviously he made the cut. He joined us as a tech lead, quickly became the leader sort of for technology for multiple platforms, the company. And then somewhere in 2013, 2014, started contemplating, you know, doing something on his own. And we started talking and discussing, as I said, stuff in 2014 to then, then launch Zeta a year later. Nice. So your, your platform, Zeta, your offering is basically a next-gen processing platform. Is that fair to say? Yes. That's, that's what we're setting out to build. Mm -hmm. Okay, wonderful. So then how do you differentiate yourself from existing legacy platforms like Pfizer or some of the newer ones like Mercata deserve? Could you tell us what your 
how do you how do you what's your comparative advantage or how do you differentiate yourself? Sure, yeah. So I mean, I think we you know we when we started Zeta, by the way, both Ramki and I, we we actually in 2014 we actually had no clue about the financial services industry, right? So we started, and I think in many ways, sometimes I mean at least multiple times, multiple industries that I have sort of built businesses and companies in, I feel many cases it can turn out to also be an advantage. So we had the opportunity to start thinking from first principles. We had the opportunity to start from a, you know, fresh slate, a blank slate, without any kind of preconceived notions, legacy architecture, legacy technology, et cetera. So you know, we built a fully modern cloud native microservices architecture based kind of platform. But we've also had the opportunity to kind of think of this in a unique way, both compared to certainly legacy platforms, as well as, as, well as some of the more modern variants that that whilst they're modern, are still monolithic in nature because you know people have decided to attack one part of the problem, like build out a you know, either a prepaid processing platform, or debit processing platform, or a core processing platform, or a credit processing platform, etc. So I'll talk about maybe three or four um, unique aspects and ideas amongst um, several kind of I would say close to a dozen kind of unique attributes of Zeta's platform. It's called Zeta Tachyon, by the way. And that's the that's the name of our platform. Tachyons are hypothetical particles that can travel at you know faster than the speed of light. And so some of the unique aspects of Zeta's kind of platform, one is we've built this in what we call a sort of a polymorphic modular architecture. So as I said, we had the luxury of really rethinking the platform from ground up. Um, both legacy platforms and even some of the modern platforms, as I said, are built as single purpose platforms. So you'll typically, as a bank, you'll typically use, you know, one vendor for your debit processing, another one for credit processing, a third one for core, a fourth one for merchant acquiring. But fundamentally, we, when we started architecting the platform, and, and Ramki's kind of the brain behind, we decomposed banking into its most fundamental foundational components. We call them the foundation modules in our platform. There's four on the issuing side and two on the acquiring side. So on the issuing side, we've got Aura, which is basically our infinitely scalable kind of account management and ledger service that essentially handles all kinds of concerns around statementing, interest calculations, fees and charges cycles, calendars, clocks, et cetera, for any asset or liability account, retail or commercial, basically. Similarly, you've got Athena, which is our universal transaction switch that handles you know, authentication, authorization, clearance, settlement, dispute management, fraud. We've got Acropolis, which is our card management and payment instrument management module, Aries, which is our customer management module. And each of these modules have been built in such a way uniquely that they can be supplied behavior through configuration dynamically at runtime, enabling these four modules, which is really where bulk of our you know, the banking platform investments gone into these, between these four modules, you can technically emulate any asset liability or payment product for end consumers or companies, so retail or commercial, and, and build out pretty much anything. It could be a credit card, debit card, prepaid account, deposit, loan, integrated products that kind of take into account, you know, multiple sort of, you know, combinations of these, et cetera. And so, so it's a very unique architecture. And then sitting on top of this, then we have the actual products, right? Credit card processing, debit card processing, prepaid processing, et cetera. So what this gives us is, is some fairly unique advantages. You know, financial institutions can still use this in a modular way, meaning they'll buy one piece stack and then potentially another piece and so on and so forth. But financial institutions that sort of start using multiple pieces of the stack will end up seeing benefits of kind of reduced OPEX, reduced integration costs, being able to build some really creative products where you have like a single card that spans across multiple accounts, both asset and liability, integrated BNPL into kind of card products, secured cards, interesting sort of hierarchies and real world use cases that can be modeled on this platform that would take substantially more effort, if at all, they can even be modeled on definitely the legacy stacks, but even some of the more modern platforms. So that's kind of one of the things that we 
that we're really sort of proud of, which is kind of the polymorphic architecture. The other thing is that we built in this in this platform what we call our hyper-personalization policy engine. And you know, customers today expect a unique experience in a digital-first product, right? Like if you open up, I don't know, your Clubhouse app or Netflix app or Instagram app or any app that we use today, you know, my experience in the app will be completely different from your experience inside the app. Most legacy and modern platforms allow you to configure a product by defining policies at the product level. In our platform, in Zeta Tachyon, you can actually you can actually define policies and programs, not just the level of a product, but on a per customer basis, per account basis, per card basis, even per transaction basis, thereby really enabling unique personalized experiences for each individual customer. So conventionally, when a you know, large bank has a credit card product, if they have 5 million customers or 2 million customers that are enrolled in that product, you know, all 2 million of them are pretty much seeing the same experience. With Zeta's platform, you can actually uniquely personalize that experience for each customer using our sort of hyper-personalization policy engine. And then, you know, we've got a whole host of other things, you know, 100% API and events coverage, fully embeddable banking ready. And, uh, and the other thing that I've also found is many of the modern platforms have been built fintech first. And we actually uniquely built our platform to serve both banks and fintechs. Uh, and in fact, we work far more with, you know, large financial institutions and banks than we do with fintechs which is a kind of different ball game when you think about it in terms of the, the needs that they have and the capabilities that are required, et cetera, as opposed to serving just purely fintech. So that's the other way that we differentiate from some of the newer platforms that are more kind of fintech first, I would say. Um, yeah, that's a quick summary. Bhavan, uh, so fascinating. It sounds like the eight months or so that you spent with some of that research Typically, what we tend to hear from some of the other startups is they pick on one small niche area and kind of expand to other areas. But it, is it fair to say that you almost went broad stroke on this and tried to tackle more problems than one? And also follow up to that is how is that resonating with some of your customers or potential customers? Because do they want to take bite sizes or they're looking for this holistic solution that you lay out for them? Sure. So I mean, you can look at it from both, both perspectives, actually, if you think about it. Yes, we did. We did take on a large problem. And I guess progressively over the last two decades plus, you know, as I've started kind of, you know, different companies, I've had the fortune of both an amazing team behind me, luxury of having sort of a little bit more capital each time. And so being able to take on sort of a larger bet. But, but I also think of it slightly differently, which is, you know, there's two ways to build this out. Like, you know, if you think about the personal computing era, for instance, you know, prior to Windows and, you know, general operating systems, et cetera, you would have personal computing machines that were good at doing one thing, right? You would have a word processing machine. You would have another machine that's, I don't know, good at like just, you know, ticket booking or some specific use case until they got generalized with sort of a general operating system that would enable them to then provide a platform on top of which you could run any app you know, um, that you want. So when we started thinking about building a banking stack, you know, for payments and, uh, and, and assets and liabilities and payments as products, we had the opportunity or the option of kind of going niche, but we felt that if we really architected the solution, well, we could create almost like a financial services operating system, which would enable to run any financial services product, but it wouldn't take significantly greater amount of investment, certainly more maturity and envisioning and imagining that architecture and implementing it, but, but not like, you know, five times the investment for building five different products on top of it. And, and so, so in some sense, I think the time was right. The technology was available. 
in terms of being able to create this, I would say polymorphic kind of modular platform that can enable any financial service use case, you know, no different from, I guess in some sense, if you think of the, I guess, you know, cloud versus data centers, right? Where, you know, you, you have the opportunity to really use these sort of foundational modules of a infrastructure as a service provider, and then you can run Dropbox on it, you can run Netflix on it, two completely different companies, but they're both using AWS underneath. So similarly, if you think of, you know, the building blocks of financial services and payments, really we were able to architect the platform. So, so our product choice was that we wanted to, to build it that way. And, and I think we, we felt that we would reap long-term benefits and so would our customers and partners reap, reap, you know, reap long-term benefits from that kind of model and, and, and architecture. And in terms of like, you know, our customers, we've seen sort of a mixture of both. We're predominantly working with the kind of large financial institutions across the globe. So like in the US, it will be kind of the top, you know, 30 to 50 banks. India, it's again, the top financial institution. HDFC Bank is one of our largest customers. And then there's, so there's some financial institutions that have, that have, you know, bought multiple parts of the stack that kind of manage, you know, credit cards, debit cards, prepaid, deposit, you know, all of it. And then there's some that have focused, you know, only on credit or only on prepaid and, and only bought that piece to start with, with the intention potentially in the future of exploring us for other other services. So, so it's been a mix of both. Got it. And how would you say what uh, either what what seems to resonate really well, or how do you feel Zeta is positioned to differentiate itself with some from the other platforms that are available, right? Also, some of the next gen solutions that come through, I think maybe like a Marketa, for instance. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess I kind of partially covered that in in the in the previous answer, which is that. Some of these modern platforms, I would say two or three things. I think that they're, you know, modern but monolithic, mean, meaning that they, they were built to solve or purpose-built to solve kind of one kind of problem or two kinds of problems, where, whereas we've sort of spanned across issuing and acquiring and within issuing card processing and core processing, even though we kind of launch with one specific module typically with a bank. They're also kind of more fintech-focused versus supporting both financial institutions and fintechs with Zeta. We've got this interesting, unique construct in Zeta Pachyon, uh, which is sort of your, we're a multi-level, multi-tenant platform. And so when we power a financial institution or a bank that comes on board, we call them a tenant or an issuer on the platform. We support this notion of what we call a VBO or a virtual bank operator. So when you're a tenant on the platform, you also have the ability to create unlimited number of VBOs under you. And each VBO is like a mini charter within your charter that you can potentially provide to a you know, fintech partner or a co-brand partner, private label partner, agent bank partner, for them to be able to almost like act like a bank, but within the sandbox that you've created constraints for distributing exactly the products that you as a bank have defined. And so really is embedded banking ready natively. So in some sense, theoretically, you know, a bank could actually use our platform and essentially become like start a marketa like business from the you know separately from their primary business in the sense that they can actually power fintechs and become a sponsor bank for fintechs and, and leverage our entire technology platform to do that. So yeah, those are some of the kind of distinctions between what we provide and what what some of the more modern platforms provide. Great. Thank you. That yes, I know some of that you covered and it was helpful to get that differentiation clearly laid out. In our audience, Bhavan, we do have a lot of product managers and you had referenced some of the 
ability to start this with the first principles around product management. Could you hit on some of the journey there in terms of discovering the pain points of finding that product market fit? I think we've heard of some of your customers in India, so we'd love to maybe get a use case out of that and just, you know, your experience of some of the early days. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. If I go back to kind of the framework that I spoke about, right, as I said, I think, a, you know, typically for, for me, any company that I've built or any product that I built, including the ones that have failed, by the way, I kind of look at them going through this journey of sort of planning, discovery, scaling and steady state. The planning phase I kind of covered. The goal is to kind of figure out the, the potential persona, problem, product, GTM, revenue, moat as kind of part of the framework. In the, in the discovery phase, it's actually, you know, once we've decided that we want to build a product, it's the goal is to get to a product market fit and discover at least one traction channel that works. So at the end of discovery, you kind of have, at the end of planning, you have a hypothesis. At the end of discovery, you have a business, right? You, you actually have a product that has, pro or, or you don't, and then you kind of shut that down, but you have a product that has product market fit and you have one traction channel where LTV is greater than CAC, where, you know, you can actually get customers in a scalable way. And there's a lot of, you know, market models for product market fit, you've got kind of, you know, people talk about high retention, high net promoter score, which I think are both, you know, very, very important when you sort of, even if you get your initial, I don't know, depending on the market you're targeting, whether it's SMBs, enterprise, you know, from between a few thousand, few ten thousand, even, you know, the first five customers, you know, how, how much do they, how much do they, you know, love your product? How retained are they? I kind of, you know, try and combine all of those into what I think of as, Beyond just NPS and retention, the level of dependence that your product creates, right? Which is, you know, when, when, you've, get, when you've got your first hundred or first thousand or first 10,000 customers, and once they start using your product, it's not just how retained they are. It's not just how, you know, how high your NPS, et cetera, is. You certainly need those as hygiene factors, but like how dependent are they on your product? You know, there's another framework generally kind of people use, which is sort of ask their customers during this phase that, you know, how disappointed would you be? If, if I took the product away, like if, if, if my company didn't exist, so you start using me for the last six months, well, if I, if I went belly under and, and, and the company didn't exist, like how disappointed would you be? And I think the threshold typically used is like if more than 40% of your existing customers, more than 35% of your existing customers say they'd be very disappointed, then you've got product market fit. So, I mean, I think in some ways the goal is to create a product that you see not customers, not just adopting and retaining with, but actually becoming dependent on to a point where they cannot live without it and it would actually impact them if the product didn't exist and so i mean that's kind of the general benchmark that i would apply to uh to getting to product market fit i think our journey in the discovery stage you know in terms of sort of figuring out customer needs and pain points etc both during the planning stage and discovery stage comprised of like a combination of a, a lot of things right you know, sales in general, like go out there and sort of pitch the product or at least pitch the concept to as many people as you can. I do, do also learn a lot, I think, from candidate interviews. I think they're like one of the best ways to rapidly learn about an industry and figure out a lot of unknown, uh, unknown unknowns, et cetera. So, you know, taking a lot of interviews, you know, of candidates, of people, you know, it kind of serves a double purpose, right? Because you find a good candidate, you'll kind of anyways want to hire talent. You're at an early stage where you want to bring in the right kind of talent. We hired a bunch of domain experts because, you know, we, we definitely had, you know, our first principles thinking and our engineering bent, but we certainly needed, well, say knowledge about the industry and the, and general sort of domain expertise. And then we were also fortunate, I guess, 
both based on you know what we were pitching and selling past credentials etc we were fortunate to find you know clients large clients that were willing to trust us that were willing to take a bet on us even though we were relatively new entrant at that point in time you know 4 years ago 5 years ago and in many in many circumstances we actually built the platform partly along with that along with that trust like we we spoke about some of the initial concepts we had a you know base framework ready we had some initial products ready but then we plugged in additional modules additional products etc along the way and we were fortunate to kind of find clients that were willing to trust us you know with that and, and make an investment in us in fact one of our first external investments was from one of our first large customers called Sodexo who back in 2017 2018 not only signed a global strategic partnership with us but also actually invested 30 million back then as the first external strategic investment in the company and so yeah those were kind of the approaches that we used to figure out needs and and pain points along the way and then last year we we were fortunate to be able to raise our first actual institutional funding round and in fact my first ever institutional fundraise across all of my companies in the last 25 years so we raised 280 million from softbank mastercard and a few other investors that are uh, roughly a 1.5 billion valuation and that's what we're leveraging right now our our predominant focus almost 80% of our you know energy effort etc is going towards uh, predominantly growth in north america which is where we want to focus for the next few years and and really gain a very very strong foothold and so bulk of that is going to help us both invest in in the platform as well as in in go to market in, in what we believe is actually one of the largest actually the largest market for this platform globally bhavan we are we have like 1 minute i think for the moderated session and then we'll have to open for the audience so i guess the last question i'll ask you because you spoke about the series c that you just raised what is your go to market strategy for north america last week we were in money 2020 and you know your companies that are sponsored a very big a very big concert foreigner so i think most people who attended money 2020 know about you by now so but in general what is your go to market plan for north america how are you approaching large banks because there is a lack of technical acumen at your level in the banks so how are you making sure that they understand the language that you speak sure actually i think mean, go to market is actually not overly complex though certainly you know it does test my patience because it takes a while to work with sort of larger institutions it this is you know i've been into enterprise sales all my life but this is kind of you know in, in many ways i kind of think of this as we're into core enterprise saas right we're not we're selling enterprise software but it's not like we're selling hr software we're selling the core platform it's almost like we're selling you know the boeing aircraft airlines right that's the that's the main artifact on which their business runs it can't go down it has to be you know it has to be the absolute sort of best for the purpose they're buying it for so in some sense it's a very very critical piece of software and it's not an it's not a quick decision our target market specifically we early on made a a list of all the banks and credit unions and financial institutions the country fintech banks and credit unions kind of ordered them in descending order of like account counts card counts size etc for retail consumer base and we've got you know if you think about it like the top 25 banks cover about 90 5 98% of the credit card base the top 25 banks cover about 90 plus percent of the debit card base so our target market is that top i would say about 40 to 50 banks and the top you know 20 odd fintechs that we would like to kind of use our platform for launching whether it's credit cards debit cards 
prepaid cards. And eventually, we, we haven't yet launched our deposits and loans platform in, in North America. We will sometime next year. But, you know, eventually that, that too, basically. So, that's the, so our go-to-market strategy is generating awareness amongst and thought leadership amongst this specific targeted audience here. And we're talking not really about a lot, right? It's about 70, 75 companies in the country. And so having, you know, personalized conversations with them and, and really sort of making them aware of the platform, aware of the benefits of the platform, et cetera. And then you, you kind of hit the nail on the head, you know, with regards to readiness on the other side also, right? So, so the analogy that I typically use is that in some sense, if you think about it, you know, banks have been competing, let's say, in the financial services race with, I don't know, Toyotas maybe, right? And we're coming in, you know, without meaning to sound immodest, just to give an analogy, we're coming in, let's say, with a Formula One race car. Well, it's not just enough to give them the car because they might not be ready with a team to drive it. And so for us, there is a selection bias. In fact, one of the reasons why we're predominantly working with large banks and financial institutions is we believe they both have the appetite, the inclination, and the ability to invest in what it really takes to be able to kind of make that migration and transformation. Many of them are ready with the right DNA. They've built sort of, you know, large internal sort of transformation teams. And the way we partner with these financial institutions also is not just sort of hand them the SaaS platform, but rather for each institution, we create like a dedicated team that works, you know, jointly with them, pairs with their people to help that initial integration and hand over things, you know, after several years for them to run and operate. So, so that's, that selection bias is also kind of essential to make sure that we're working with, well, partners or, you know, financial institutions or banks that are ready to be able to make that change. And much like I think any, you know, other industry, this is going to follow the same kind of Joffrey Moore's crossing the chasm curve. So there's, there's a set of early, you know, innovators and adopters that are going to adopt a stack like ours in the coming few years. We believe that about 30% of the industry will make a change, change within the next decade, if not a little bit sooner. And then I think the rest, 70%, will follow over the next decade or so globally. And so, so it is a long game. And, and yeah, our goal is to try and acquire large majority of that market share. Awesome. Well, let's move now to the audience Q&A. There are questions flowing in from all over. We also, I'm not sure if you know, but web for Clubhouse, they also have a web version. So I'm getting messages from the web version as well to ask you questions. First question, I asked Anand to come on stage. If he's not able to, I'll just read it for you. So Anand and I, we used to work at SoFi. He managed our lending. Oh, there he is. Hi, Anand. If you want to give your own intro and ask your question. Hi. Hi, Bamin, and thanks for taking the call. Quick question. You know, I just wanted to get a sense. And I, I, I've worked with Ambika before. I was at SoFi, and then I'm at Guaranteed Rate. When you look at the landscape, you know, do you, what makes you think that a big bank would prefer your platform versus you know, building their own stuff. I mean, in other words, you know, what, what is the key sauce that you think is differentiating you from building out? And the second thing is, are you trying to be like a cross-river bank or you know, something for everybody, or are you trying to be like in a certain banking sector? Sure, thanks, Anand. That's, you know, great questions. So firstly, you know, in terms of like what makes us, what gives us confidence, the large banks will choose us who are building on their building a platform on their own. So we do have like our largest customer in India, HDFC Bank, is a 40 million retail accounts looking to kind of migrate our legacy. Uh, in the US, we've been, you know, less than a year and a half now. We've signed our, our, our first large bank contract with about 6 million credit cards. 
that they're migrating from Fiserv over to our platform. So we're definitely seeing, you know, traction. We're in advanced stages of conversations with some other really large institutions. But, you know, specifically addressing your question, I don't think the right economic solution is for every large financial institution, like all 200 of them around the world, to build their own platforms. It would be, you know, akin to saying, you know, companies like Dropbox, Netflix, even Zeta, you know, theoretically, we can, you know, buy a data center, buy our own machines, install our own operating systems, and buy our own connectivity, electricity, and set up a private cloud. But we choose to use AWS or, you know, Google Cloud or Azure because these are infrastructural pieces where we can leverage the common investment of an organization and build on top of it. We think of banking tech in a similar way. You know, it, 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 I, we don't think that it's economically viable in the right approach for banks to invest their capital into building a platform that, that where instead of being able to spread that investment across, you know, across multiple financial institutions, et cetera. So in many ways, some of the larger banks that started down that journey and path, and we've had conversations with several of them in the sort of top 10 banks across, you know, multiple jurisdictions, you'll, you'll, you'll see the common thread that a lot of them actually started building their own platform, not necessarily because they wanted to, though they might, you know, say it differently, but in many cases also because what's well, been like 40 to 50 years and 80% of banking tech still runs on mainframes and nobody was making the change. And so they had no choice but to say, well, let's start doing that internally ourselves. You know, with, with platforms like ours now available, they at least have the opportunity to say, well, we could technically leverage our capital better elsewhere and we can, we can leverage platforms like Zeta to, to basically provide, you know, fill in the gap that we felt existed, you know, solve for this problem. So that's kind of, I think, the first, you know, answer to the first question. The second one, so we're not, a, a cross river bank is actually a sponsor bank, right? You did a financial institution that's mm -hmm. providing bank sponsorship and bank charter to fintechs. We're, we're, Zeta is very clearly and only a technology service provider. We're not a regulated entity. We're, we do not have our own license. We do not have a charter. And our intention is not to provide a sponsor bank or banking services. Rather, our intention is to provide services to bank. In that sense, actually, we don't think of ourselves as a fintech. It's more, I guess some people call it tech fin because we're technology for financial services, not a fintech ourselves. We're not providing, our product is not financial services. Our product is a platform that enables other financial services institutions to manufacture and provide financial services on a modern platform. So our intention is it. to be, yeah, the payment processing engine, you know, a next-gen uh, processing engine or next-gen processing platform for banks and fintechs. But isn't, you know, the reason I'm asking is, in the past, the banks usually are afraid because of regulatory issues, right? So that was the reason. I mean, most people don't go outside because they want to control that environment. So I don't know if you're feeling, but I'm, I think I'm, you know, the time is short, so I'll give up my time, let Ambika and, and Monisha run with other questions. I appreciate it. Thank you. Anand, one thing I always hear from other like tech officials or tech leaders in big banks is that they rather focus on delivering good like ui customer experiences yeah. and they're okay in like outsourcing the infrastructure part also primarily because they feel they don't have enough technical talent to build scale so they rather out they rather partner with a company to no but the fraud the fraud issue is very big right so most most of the time you don't outsource it unless you have complete confidence in in managing the fraud or the um, the hacking space and all that issues. So that's one of the key things that holds banks. But mm. 
but I guess over time we'll overcome that. Yeah, Bhavi, Anand ran uh, City's uh, cards program. Okay, so let's go to the next one. It's related to this question. It was from a person named Sushil. He had to draw, but he texted me his question. And Bhavan, he's asking, do you have a framework to convert big banks to your platform? It's not an easy task. So how are you, I think it's kind of similar if you want to just add to how are you approaching big banks? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I think I would talk then about the post-interest and traction phase. There is a framework and we kind of look at typically a deployment as a single product greenfield start, kind of a foot in the door. So whenever we're working with large banks, even if they want to buy the whole platform, we'll deploy the platform will launch a first new product with that bank. So let's say a new credit card program or a new debit card program for a new set of customers or new applications. And they'll start directing, you know, post that initial integration and deployment, they'll start directing either a fraction or all of their new applications to our stack whilst continuing to run in parallel the older platform, the older stack with the older customers. And then post um, a certain time period, so six months, 12 months, we start batch by batch kind of migrating or migrating at one go kind of all their existing customers from legacy from the legacy stack to ours. So it's kind of a lower risk approach where you're not really doing kind of a open heart surgery directly on the core, you know, set of customers that are already operating, but rather because we're cloud native pay as you go it enables the opportunity to be able to kind of start out a bit slower, I would say, and, and test everything is working and then move into kind of rapid migration <clears throat> great thank you we have nine minutes and four more people so Seishu, over to you if you want to introduce yourself and then ask your question yeah got it hey i'm Seishu Gurenti. i manage a few platforms at a at a large bank where ambika works so just curious on on the go-to-market side of things i know most of the technology firms not technology banks actually move slowly and have a long lead cycles, but but there are a lot of other technology companies that are actually very keen to actually move to financial services. And for for those, this could be a big launching pad. Like you know, Apple wants to get into credit cards. Amazon and and I think Google also tried. Meta probably you know wants the, a payment processor for all of them. So have you guys thought about that space? <laughs> sure, uh, sure, Seishu. So. I mean, I guess I fundamentally divide the industry for us into banks and fintechs. So even everybody else, everybody else you name, like Apple, Google, Amazon, if they're not a regulated licensed banking entity themselves, then they're a fintech. And if they're a fintech, then to me, fintechs are essentially digital distributors of the product of a bank because the only entity that can manufacture financial products and services is a bank. And if you're not a bank and you want to provide financial services, then you become a reseller or distributor, which is kind of what a fintech is. It's a, it's a, it's a modern distributor instead of a branch. Now you have fintechs distributing a bank's products and services. So certainly by virtue of the platform that we've created with sort of this whole concept of virtual bank operators and, and embeddable banking kind of readiness, we certainly power both sides of the equation, banks and fintechs. You know, we are, are relatively more focused on banks because fundamentally the way I see it is Fintechs eventually have to partner with the bank. If the bank is using our, you know, issuer processing platform or core processing platform, by default, the fintech will end up leveraging that platform because of the APIs that we provide that will enable them to distribute that product. So if we become the, you know, processing platform, in this case, let's say you mentioned Apple, you know, if we're the processing platform of Goldman or Marcus, you know, Apple is by default using us in that sense, right? So, so therefore, you know, we are kind of focused on, on 
on banks and fintechs both in that regards uh, i have been curious by the way to see what you know what some of these big techs are sort of thinking of when they think of financial services play because you know while it does while it might seem that that financial services are kind of like the next big opportunity area i personally think part of the reason why they haven't necessarily ventured as much as they as some folks might think is that you know providing financial services has a cap return on equity if you're fundamentally providing cuz uh, you know money in the financial services industry is made on lending when you lend money you basically put up equity against it the regulation requires that that equity be maintained in a certain ratio and so unlike a pure tech business like zeta's business or google's business or apple's core business the returns are not uncapped here, right you the investment that you make the best banks will end up making you know on the low end 20% of the high end 40% return on equity so they're not exactly the same characteristics as fundamentally these large big techs kind of existing businesses are so i'm still curious to see there's certainly value additions like for amazon you know integrating financial services will actually improve and increase their primary sales but i i i doubt that they will all become banks themselves i, I think it's highly unlikely even though a lot of people in the industry seem to think that that's a threat I've never believed that that will be the case. Got it, got it. Good, good. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I know we have only a few minutes, so I have a lot of interesting questions, but very, very good, you know, thanks, Bhavan, for, for, for that startup experience and the story that you told. Thank you. Thanks, Aishu. James, over to you. Hi, thanks. Can you hear me? Yes, this time. Yes, way to update your app. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I preemptively restarted it, so I don't know. So yes, thank you, Bobbin, for for joining. My name is James Sontag, and I'm a developer. I used to work with Ambika over at SoFi. So Bobbin, you're obviously an accomplished serial entrepreneur, and are able to juggle and manage manage juggling all of them without a sweat. So what drives you to continue finding and creating these new companies? And obviously, I think we're all wondering what's your secret to maintaining this energy. Thanks thanks for that. You know I I I guess the the drive part like I I've always James I think from a pretty early age somehow sort of an ingrained philosophy I've always believed that it's our moral obligation to make an impact that's proportionate to our potential and and I feel that I still have some ways to go in terms of the kind of impact that I along with the team that I've built out who by the way without whom you know they make me look good without whom I I really be be nowhere but but i i really think we still have a you know fair ways to go in terms of the kind of impact that we can make so that's kind of what continues to drive me you know fundamentally i've always loved building stuff i'm very passionate about solving large problems and i and i and i believe that it's our our obligation to make an impact in this world and so i think that's kind of the 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 first part and and i think you know i one of my favorite books by the way in my kind of top list of I have this post on the top sort of 39 40 books that I've read but I I love this book Start with Why by Simon Sinek. I think it's it's easy to find passion when you have purpose and and so I guess part of the energy drive all of that comes from kind of you know finding problems that will make meaningful impact and that ha- that give me and and our organization sort of purpose and so that's uh, that's always uh, that's always exciting in terms of sort of how I manage to juggle a uh, bunch of this stuff i mean i'm again i have so many folks in my leadership teams in 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 all through my companies that have you know worked with me for 12 15 18 20 22 years from from very early days and 
and I, I stand on their shoulders in many ways, right? So I have the opportunity to be able to go out there and 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 create the success that we're creating because there's all these sort of people behind me, and and I certainly wouldn't be able to do I think anything that I half of what I can do if it wasn't for kind of the outstanding team that we have across all these all these organizations. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. I'm going to look up that book. Thanks for the suggestion. By the way, Bobin, I didn't know there was a web version for Clubhouse and that people can just listen without the app. So DK is one of those individuals who was messaging me on LinkedIn with some questions for you. And I asked him to download the app during the show and he did. So DK, welcome. Thanks for downloading the app and yeah, introduce us. <clears throat> Thanks, Amika. And great to meet you, Bhavin. My name is DK Sharma. I've I've been there in the legacy world and now I'm in the hopefully the so-called modern world. I was a CIO for Cities International Businesses and ran technology across 30 markets, always frustrated with many of the old technologies and managed to do some transformations across them and have a lot of scars on my back. My question to you is that, you know, getting the tech right is one part of the puzzle. Getting it certified for the landscape that it needs to operate in requires a whole lot of domain knowledge and kind of those test criteria. I'll give you one example of my own. I ran a startup completely de novo, running personal loans in the US. And with my team, we had to spend about 12 months to just get the all the test cases and all the regulatory sort of use cases certified, not tech, but in terms of just going through the process of getting that done. Granted, we were a small team, but my question to you is as you come to the US, how do you anticipate doing that heavy lifting from the perspective of getting that certification? Would you be depending on the bank that you partner with or have you identified some partnerships that will help you get there faster? Uh, or you know, based on all that, what's your plan to land with a certified sort of install which can be meeting the needs of the regulatory framework in the US? Sure, DK, and I think you know clearly it demonstrates a you know, veteran because, uh, <laughs> as you rightly pointed out, you know technology. I, I would say it's not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily sort of. It definitely has its own complexities, but but it pays in comparison in many ways to kind of regulatory and compliance requirements, etc. Those can get fairly complicated, and it's not even. I think you also nailed it when you said it's not the implementation. By the way, the way we've built Zeta's platform, and we've seen this in India. We've seen this in, the, in North America. We've demonstrated this to many, many clients because of the architecture that we've created on almost 90, 95% or more occasions, you know, even when a new regulation comes out in any, any jurisdiction, any, any region, we found, unlike all of our competition, that we can actually become fully compliant in a matter of less than 24 to 48 hours as far as the technology part is concerned in terms of how we configure the platform for whether it's, you know, bazillion things in, 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 in sort of Kardak, Reg Z, all these sort of alphabets that they have for all the regulations in, in North America. So certainly it's not, you know, technology is a challenge. Our architecture sort of enables us to do that, you know, fairly rapidly. To answer sort of some parts of your question, so firstly, we would never ever start selling a platform and, and then build regulatory compliance along the way with the first client. In fact, we have a, again, a fairly straightforward kind of laid out template for each. So we're currently Zeta's live in, in seven markets. So we're uh, across currencies, countries, regulations in, you know, Vietnam, Philippines, India, Spain, Italy, UK, Brazil, and US now. And 
we've got a template when we launch in each market. We, we look at roughly about, you know, the deployment time is, is less than a couple of months to sort of deploy and test everything. But we take about between six to eight months, depending on the complexities involved, to actually get full regulatory compliance. And we'll hire the right domain expertise. Like in the US, we have a full-time chief compliance officer who comes with, you know, almost 30 plus, 35 plus years of experience in card processing, core processing, and regulatory compliance for building out software platforms and products. And so uh, we'll typically start with bringing in the right domain expertise, making the relevant list. So like in case of, in the US, we started with credit cards. So we went, you know, we went through and created a full list of all the elements that we need to be able to support in our platform for, you know, Reg Z, Card Act, SCRA, Military Lending Act, you know, Reg V, E, F, B, T, C, like all the ones that are relevant to us as a processor. The specific implications thereof, and by the way, credit card regulatory compliance in North America is potentially more complex than you know any other location in the world. So we we spent a fair bit of time investigating, exploring, truly understanding it, then building out, getting the platform to support it, which actually took us a few months. Then writing the relevant test cases, and then getting them both internally certified as well as sort of having external customers who've actually selected us now. Right, we've got two live contracts that are under integration, several more under consideration, but. These clients have also gone through a fairly detailed assessment of our platform to ensure that that we can comply with all these regulations. And in many cases, we found that we do a better job because the way we leverage technology than legacy platforms that have existed and built out these sort of regulatory compliances over the past, I don't know, two decades. Because in many cases, some of the regulatory compliances are built sort of more as a hard code on top of an existing platform, whereas in Zeta Tachyon, like we can actually configure this in an interesting configurable way that affords flexibility is not a hard code, is more easily monitorable, is much more testable. So we have, again, another unique feature of Zeta, Zeta Tachyon is that configuration is actually code that goes through a full GitOps CI/CD pipeline. This is, again, unique to our platform. So when you know we have web interfaces and APIs that will allow you to set up products and define policies and define programs, but all of that goes into YAML files sitting in a Git repository with full versioning, rollback, CI/CD pipeline workflows, etc., that enables unparalleled, unparalleled automated validation and testing uh, capability, which compliance teams never had before. You know, typically a person would go in and manually create a product. Somebody else will have to manually run all the test cases. Well, now compliance can be satisfied that no matter what change is made to the system, there is going to be a battery of automated tests that are triggered without which the change will not be promoted to production. You know, all the stuff that we take for granted in a software CI-CD pipeline is now available for configuration for the first time. So some really unique capabilities that can help us in that journey, but we will always be fully compliant in, in a country before we kind of launch there. So with that definition, Bhavin, what's the kind of ETA for a compliant bank offering in the US? So we are now fully compliant in the process of launching, but the ETA, to answer your question, as I said, in any typical country, the first time we start, for the very first time, it takes us about between six to eight months to get okay. a, any particular product to full compliance. And a large part of that is not the technology piece. A large part of that yeah. is just dot, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, like you said. And that's kind of the, so we started that journey for credit cards in, in North America about a year and a half ago and kind of finished it several quarters ago. We started the journey for debit cards in the US again, you know, a few quarters ago, and we'll, we'll kind of finish that in, in the next quarter or so. And so similarly, each product by product, we'll kind of, you know, wrap that journey up. It takes lesser time for each subsequent product, though the liability product eventually next year when we start the journey for that will end up taking more time because it is, it is also regulatorily heavy in right. comparison. 
got it understand uh, thank you thank you and wish you all the very best you are on a clearly a good path and you know and with hdfc and some of the very large complex organization i'm sure you'll get a lot of good learnings which will set you set you bright for the us thanks tk and then we have anton let's see if it works for you this time here we go yeah can you guys hear me yep i'm sorry about that like i encountered some technical difficulties hey bomin by the way you know awesome one of the best clubhouse meetings that i've been in so quick question here right so i work at a large bank too and the kinds of patterns that i see is banking is more and more divided into the back end bank and the front end bank right you know you can see embedded banking in like a lot of spaces uh and and uh, the technology platforms like azeta marketa they are inevitable at the end of the day right like these banks need to provide value to their customers faster quicker and not be tied bogged down by legacy systems in your experience you know how easy or difficult has it been to compete with the likes of marketa galileo and others who are already in, you know doing pretty well in the space in the us you know and and then where do you think embedded banking is heading because i can already see goldman sachs and stripe have stripe goldman sachs is offering their global treasury management apis through stripe you know uber money is built on top of green dot you know a lot of things are happening in that space so if you can just give us a little bit of what you think on what's going on with embedded banking sure so you know to answer your first question i would say that you know in many ways i think we probably don't necessarily head on compete with marketa and galileo exactly i mean we certainly face competition from them but if you think about it there there isn't a single large bank and i'm talking the top 25 not just in north america but you know top 200 in the world none of them are using whether it's marketa or galileo etc as platforms because they weren't fundamentally built for large banks and financial institutions certainly for large fintechs or mid-sized fintechs but in the large banking space there actually hasn't been a a entrant in our opinion until we kind of came along and and they are sort of they and along with other players are certainly competing in that space but we still feel it's very very nascent and we feel we have a strong advantage because of the architecture and the platform that we've built and the the way we've conceptualized it and so at this stage as it as it so happens i think the size of contracts that we have amongst banks uh, i think is 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 larger for the most part than than the competitors you mentioned simply because uh, we have invariably found that that when we talk to large financial institutions and large banks they find our solution to be far more complete and far more well thought out when it comes to the use cases and the needs of a bank as opposed to just a fintech so so i think that's kind of the the answer to the first part of the question for the second part you know i strongly believe like i i the again the analogy that i provide i mean i think one of our goals in zeta we keep talking about you know our vision is to to enable so through the strategy of sort of transforming banks into digital first companies enable individuals and and companies to kind of maximize their financial wellness and we talk about things like making you know democratizing banking which is pushing more control to the edges ensuring that people have far more unique digital experiences far more control over their kind of financial products and services as well as make the whole payment and and financial service experience completely transparent you know kind of like i guess the analogy that i can give is you know the, the back in the ancient times as 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 humans we would go i guess out in search for water right we would go to wells or lakes or rivers or whatever it is to to find water uh, because the basic necessity of life and there's an effort required to do that but now in the modern age 
water is kind of transparently embedded into our lives contextually where we need it, right? So we open a tap and, and there it is and we take it for granted. We don't even think about it twice. And, and banking is kind of going through that transformation also in the last decade and even more rapidly now where you know, people would go to a bank to obtain a financial service, but now it's like the banking service comes to where it's needed embedded in the journey or path when it is needed, whether it's payments, whether it's you know, loans, point of sale, the idea is to kind of make sure that financial services can be embedded when and where the consumers uh, consumers need them. So I, I strongly believe that embedded finance and embedded banking is 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 a very critical step. Now, fundamentally, it still you know works in the same core. The way we see it is our platform enables the manufacture of banking services, the provision of banking services, and the embedding of those banking services into you know whichever surfaces you want to embed them into through whichever partners you want to embed them you know, with, you know, whether it's fintechs or agent banks or so on and so forth. So I think when it comes to the world of embeddable banking, it's been kind of used in two use cases as I see it. One is kind of fintechs or folks that are competing with banks, right? So they, they're, you know, creating their own credit cards or deposit accounts, et cetera. To me, that's actually lesser embeddable banking and more, you know, kind of a charter renting where, you know, that's the best way for a fintech to compete. But eventually, and I think if you read the latest go-to report, by the way, on this, it talks about how really for fintechs to survive, they will have to become banks because at some point in time, fundamentally after you, you know, take all the technology and equalize it, what's left behind is that banking is a risk management business that depends heavily on a low cost of funds and, and sort of an effective and efficient risk management and, and trust of customers. And uh, you know, while fintechs might have, those fintechs that are competing with banks might have you know, it's a beautiful front-end experiences and great mobile apps, et cetera, they always, they have a very high cost of funds today. And, and so they will have to manage their own balance sheets eventually, which means to me, that's lesser embeddable banking and more a start into banking themselves. For me, they're financial institutions, the making at some point, you know, they can become relevant customers of Zeta even from the start. And for me, they're banks. And then you've got true embeddable banking, which is really fusion of banking products and services contextually where customers need them and building sort of a niche solution uh, that banks will not build specifically focused on a particular you know, target market, whether it's building a certain kind of, I don't know, expense management platform for SMBs and then embedding a card solution inside it that complements that, or whether it is you know, providing loans or, or credit at you know, point of sale, or whether it is providing, I don't know, specific solutions for, I don't know, teenagers or parents or things of that, right? So, so there it's more about solving for a specific problem and then embedding financial services as a part of that solution because that solution is complete with that embedded financial service. And, and, and there's like, much like the internet in some ways, you know, open standards and open platforms enabled such a high degree of innovation of apps being built on top of this, this, this landscape. Similarly, the more kind of banking platforms like Zetas are adopted by banks and financial institutions, enable kind of, you know, open banking APIs, Embeddable banking APIs, it will enable lots and lots of these, you know, tens of thousands of unique use cases built on top of financial services that otherwise could not have been built before on, on legacy platforms. And, and, and I think we're still at, at an early stage of that revolution. Yep. Thank you. Like that is, that is exactly what we're seeing as well. There's a whole lot of opportunity in the whole open banking space and banks are just beginning to scratch the surface. And by the way, excellent, uh, you know, it, it was great knowing you and, uh, you know, how you're kind of driving purpose within your organization.
agree. Bhavin, last question. I'm getting a lot of messages. Everyone's a huge fan of you. They want to know, are you hiring in the US and what roles, if you want to just make a note on that as well? For sure, yes. You know, we are rapidly expanding our North America team and specifically in, in of course, go-to market, so sales, pre-sales, marketing, etc. But now, more importantly, given kind of the contracts that we've signed and the ones that we see at least are, are in the pipeline, also large kind of, you know, customer success, technology, solution architects, project management, implementation folks, who will help build, who will sort of lead teams and, and be parts of teams that will kind of help banks adopt our platform and, and technology. And so that's also kind of an area that we're heavily focused on kind of expanding our team. So, you know, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn and, and, and send me a message there if, you, if anybody's definitely interested in, in, you know, asking questions, exchanging ideas or, or, or applying to work with us. Be more than happy to, to have that dialogue. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We went 16 minutes over. So thank you for staying longer. I think it's evident that this show was a success. Everyone's a huge fan of what you're doing. You're very purpose driven. And that's so it's great to see that. And the fact that you're taking the company global, which I think is also exciting for both us and you, I think the end user. Last, last thing here I have is, well, we, we recorded the whole show, so we'll upload it on all major podcasting platforms and I'll share it with your team. So other than that, this is all I have. And I just want to thank you for sharing all your knowledge with us today. Ambika Manisha, thank you so much for inviting me. This is actually exciting. It's been a while since I've, uh, I've joined a, a Clubhouse talk, which was really fun. Lots of fun questions and very logical, tangible questions made me think. So that's always fun. And Truly appreciate your time and, and thank you very much for having me on the, on the podcast. Can't wait to see how, how you grow in US. So wishing you much success, Bhavan. Thanks for have, uh, being here. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back next week, same time, Wednesday, 5 p.m. Pacific. So look forward to seeing the audience next week. Have a good evening. Thanks, everyone. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you like the discussion, we welcome you to join us during our live shows every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on Clubhouse. We'd be delighted to have you there. You can also find other episodes on all major podcasting platforms, such as Spotify, Apple, Google, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate if you could leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next week, be safe. Thank you.